بيفهم عربي كثير منيح بيحكي اللغة بس أفضل له يعني مشان يركز أكثر بيحكي بالإنجليزي يمكن أفضل أفضل طريقة لحتى نقدم لهذه الندوة حول السياسات التركية الإقليمية أنه نحكي عن الخلاصات يلي واصل لها زميلنا جنجيز تشاندر بكتابه الوحيد والأخير يلي ترجم للعربي تحت عنوان قطار الرافدين السريع يلي هو بالحقيقة يعني بيحكي فيه عن تجربته بالمنطقة تجربته الفلسطينية وتجربته مع الأكراد علاقته ببيروت وعلاقته بكل القضايا يلي طرحها الربيع العربي بيقول بخلاصات هذا الكتاب انه لهيب الثورة العربية يلي انطلقت من تونس لفت شمال افريقيا والشرق الاوسط وانه خلال فترة قصيرة سقطت ديكتاتوريات في تونس ومصر وليبيا وثم انتقلت الشرارة إلى اليمن والبحرين ووقفت أمام أبواب سوريا مع مطلع الألفية صارت تركيا قوة بالساحة الإقليمية والدولية وأظهرت دينامية كبيرة في إطار الجيوبوليتيك العثمانية وهذا سمح لأردوغان أنه يوصل لمستوى النجومية في المنطقة بحيث أنه ما حدا بيتذكر أنه حدا بلغ هذا المستوى منذ رحيل الزعيم جمال عبد الناصر بيعتبر أنه داود أغلو مهندس عودة تركيا إلى الشرق الأوسط وبيشرح كيف داود أغلو صار يمضي كل وقته بجولات بالمنطقة ويلي هو حيكون بقسم من هذه الجولات خاصة لما رافق داود أغلو بزيارته الأخيرة لدمشق ولما الوفد التركي برئاسة داود أغلو كان أمضى حوالي ثلاث ساعات مع بشار الأسد بمحاولة جنجيز بيوصفها أنه محاولة يأسي لإقناع النظام السوري بالإصلاح بطريق العودة لتركيا روى داود أغلو الأمور يلي دارت بينه وبين الأسد على مدى أكثر من ثلاث ساعات وكيف أنه قدم اقتراح لخطوة أولى للإصلاح والانتقال نحو نظام تعددي هي قدم له سبع أسماء لحتى يوسع تمثيل الحكومي وبين هاي السبع أسماء في ثلاثة من الأخوان المسلمين بالحقيقة داود أغلو ما كان كتير متفائل بموضوع تجاوب بشار الأسد مع دعوته يعني مع الدعوة التركية للإصلاح وهيك بدنا نشوف إنه كيف سوريا بدها تتحول تدريجيا لساحة صراع 
غير معلن بين تركيا وإيران على حد قول زميلنا جنجيز شامبر بضوء انهيار التوازن الإقليمي الموروث من الحرب الباردة وقبلها خريطة سيكس بيكو يعتقد يعتقد جنجيز أن تركيا يمكن أن تعود إلى مسرح التاريخ باعتبارها روما الشرقية الديمقراطية والعودة بالطبع يجب أن تكون عبر الكونفدرالية أو الفدرالية مع الأكراد وبالتالي يمكن فتح صفحة جديدة تتغلب على الانقسام السائد بالمنطقة وتمحي الحدود المصطنعة القائمة وتضع أرضية لاعاده وحده المنطقه انما بنفس الوقت بيلاحظ انه هذا حلم حلم كبير انما هو مجرد حلم من اجل شرق اوسط متعدد وغير مقسم ينهي ينهي تشاندر رحلته بالطويله يلي يلي كانت هي على مدى عقود بالمنطقه ب ملاحظة بتقول حدود تركيا رسمت مع حدود الشرق الأوسط في نهاية الحرب العالمية الأولى لذلك يبدو أن تشكل تركيا الجغرافي والذهني الجديد سيكون حسب القالب الذي ستدخله تطورات الشرق الأوسط وعلى رأسها القضية الكردية ونطرح السؤال هل وطبعا هذا السؤال هو طارحه هل يسير الشرق الأوسط بعد العام 2011 نحو مزيد من التفكك أم نحو التغلب على حالة التجزئة يلي عاشتها المنطقة طوال ما يقارب القرن خلينا نستمع إلى جنكيس تشاندر يحدثنا عن السياسات الإقليمية لتركيا بمرحلة ما بعد الربيع العربي وتكريس الصيغة الأردوغانية بالسلطة بتركيا وطبعا مع الأخذ بعين الاعتبار الوضع الجديد الناشئ عن تشكيل التحالف الدولي بوجه ما يسمى الخطر الداهم لداعش تفضل شكرا أهلا وسهلا لكم سيدات سادتي على باللغة الإنجليزية The title of the talk that I was asked to share with you summarizes everything in a sense Erdogan's Turkey and the Arab neighbors from zero problems policy to zero neighbors policy Actually, this title is very much sloganized and spoken in Turkish intellectual circles, and this very title makes our uh, current prime minister, the former foreign minister, Ahmet Davutoğlu, very nervous, because uh, he coined the phrase uh, zero problems policy, and it was a very successful policy for a while. So the, the point we have reached uh, that uh, this policy transformed itself into zero neighbors policy uh, 
inherently becomes very critical for a foreign policy. Mainly, uh, Davutoglu himself is responsible, or uh, is at least architecturally uh, has an important uh, share in it. Nevertheless, this is the case, and we. we very uh, clear indication of where Turkey was and now where it reached. If we take an empirical example, uh, it's the United Nations vote for the Security Council membership. In the year 2008, uh, Turkey was a candidate uh, for the non-permanent membership of the Security Council. Uh, it, it had a nearly record-breaking support. 151 members of the United Nations, 151, 151 nations of the United Nations voted for Turkey's Security Council membership. It expired. It's for two years, I think. For two years. Now, this year again, uh, two months ago, Turkey nominated itself Uh, to, re to renew its mandate as a member of the UN Security Council. The new foreign minister of Turkey, in person, went for lobbying in New York. The outcome was 61. So from 2008 to 2014, the difference of vote is nearly 100 in the, in the United Nations. So uh, this is by itself an indicator Uh, from a, a semblance of a successful or credible foreign policy into, into the one which is not seen as it was used to be seen. I recall uh, it was two or three years ago, again, uh, in this table I was trying to, to define the uh, Turkish foreign policy for the region. And also I remember another occasion at the Bristol Hotel four years ago, maybe three years ago, which was initiated by uh, Mr. Walid, Walid Bekjumblat. So uh, in those two uh, different venues, oh, Beirut was the common venue, but in Bristol Hotel in, and here in this institute, um, I underlined more or less the, 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 the same issues. What makes Turkey's uh, Middle East policy as it is? Today, after two, three years, I will be, I am the same person, although I lost weight and I added two, three years of more age to myself. I will be speaking in a very different and diametrically opposed way to what I had spoken earlier. So, in my part, it seems to some people who doesn't know me closely personally, but uh, witnessing both Uh, periods talking, hearing me two, three years ago and hearing me right now, uh, may come to the conclusion that I am a very inconsistent person. Uh, maybe it is true. <laughs> I will not contest that it may not uh, be true. Yet, uh, I have my reasons to be so. And uh, the, this issue, the, this very issue of this consistency of uh, assessing The Turkish Middle East policy of two, three years ago and of today is a great concern and a very uh, 
vibrant debate within the Turkish intellectual circles. Uh, uh, like Bernard Lewis book, Where Did It Go Wrong? So it is not only a matter of Turkey's foreign policy, where did it go wrong? Maybe our own is Turkish intellectuals who was very supportive of the current government, current ruling and the, the ruling party in Turkey. Where did it go wrong with us? What mistakes if we did ever, we we have committed those mistakes and so it is uh, still uh, the, in a, uh, it's work in progress. This debate is going on in Turkey. But if I come back to what uh, I uh, intend to say, uh, There was a proactive Turkey with the beginning of this century, with the beginning of this millennium, which coincides with AK Party, Justice and Development Party, his brother will tell me, became the power by the year 2002, only six months or four, five months after the band leader of the party because of thanks to lifting the ban against him, uh, could run uh, uh, for the parliament and became the prime minister, replacing Abdullah Gül, uh, who is, as you all know, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the, the, the mighty uh, leader of Turkey since over a decade. So uh, from that time on, for a while, uh, and Abdullah Gül has become the foreign minister between 2003 to 2007 until he moved up to the post of presidency. <clears throat> During this time, Turkey was very insistent on integrating to the European Union. The full membership negotiations were started by the year 2005 according to the decision of the European Union summit in at Brussels, December 2004. So from that time and from uh, the power of the, uh, the uh, current ruling party, uh, uh, it's in its initial stages, it was a kind of a skyrocketing uh, successes internally in Turkey, thanks to liberalizing reforms, Uh, comply in compliance with the acquis communautaire of uh, the European Union and in foreign policy, a uh, new opening to the region coined by the then advisor, Mr. Davutoğlu, as uh, zero problems with the neighbors. We had only one problem, problematic neighbor, that was the KRG, Kurdistan Regional Government, because of uh, well-known reasons of Turkey's position concerning the Kurdish issue. Uh, Turkish establishment was very allergic to a federal Kurdistan next to its borders. So if we leave aside the KRG, Kurdistan Regional Government, the rest of the neighbors, but when we spoke of neighbors, we didn't mean Russia, Bulgaria, Greece, uh, Georgia, Ukraine. It was mainly our Muslim uh, neighbors, Iran, Iraq, 
in Syria, in Lebanon, and Jordan, and the, the, the neighborhood itself. Because the, the new uh, power in Turkey, not new anymore, for that time it was a new, it, it, it has an ideological motivation also. Uh, to be different than its predecessors in order to revive the Ottoman realm under new circumstances. It doesn't necessarily mean sending Turkish armies and capturing territory and uh, appointing governors from Istanbul because it's Ankara, not normal Istanbul is the capital. So it, it's a different world. But still, it was there was a this resurrecting the, the Ottoman realm and the, the Arab world was a passage for it. And in order to have a new opening to the Arab world, this new uh, the, the uh, uh, zero problems with the neighbors. This this is as a phrase, coin. But what are the instruments to support this opening, which was coined as new uh, uh, the zero problems with the neighbors? That was mainly trade. Turkey at the time has elevated to be a G20 country, seventeenth uh, in terms of the volume of economy of uh, uh, trade and so on, uh, commerce, commercial activity, it, 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 it has become the 17th or 16th, 17th largest economy in the world, and in, in terms of volume again, uh, 7th in Europe. So it, uh, this G7 uh, enlarged to be G8, encompassing Russia, then it was, as you, you all know, enlarged to be G20 and Turkey was in G20 and as being a neighborhood country, being a member of G20, a lot of excess in terms of its production and economic activity, uh, the, the, the neighborhood, the Arab Muslim neighborhood was an outlet. Uh, so the economy necessitated this opening, therefore trade, trade was a instrument for zero uh, problems with neighbor policy. The second one was diplomacy. Turkey was everywhere, bringing Syrians and trying to bring Syrians and Israelis together, despite the uh, objections even of the American administration. Bringing Afghans and Pakistans, Pakistanis together. Moving around and trying to, 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 uh, to resolve the, the, the presidential deadlock here in Lebanon, jumping in, in, into Lebanese political equation even. Uh, with Qataris, with some, some others along, but still, uh, a Turkish prime minister coming and seeing the leaders of every single Lebanese party in four or five hours time. They were unprecedented. There were no such activity. So, but mainly what I, I, I want to say is uh, uh, this zero problems with neighbors policy had uh, the main instrument of it was uh, soft power. So there was an introduction of Turkish soft power into the region. Turkey, thanks to its Ottoman past in this region, has a connotation of a Prussian type of power with muscles, adalat. Uh, so, as particularly in this country, 
that the old generation uh, makes reference to Turkey about seferberlik period, which jandarma, seferberlik. Do these are the Turkish words in, in, entered into Arabic language, and so it was the Prussia of the Middle East. Now that Turkey, always remembered with its adalat, is moving into the region with soft power, with trade which was the, the, the uh, uh, position of the Jews before in this region. So Turkey, Turks are proving to be a good contractors, good businessmen, active at least, moving around. And, and uh, So in order to do that, uh, visa requirements were lifted between Turkey and Syria, between Turkey and Jordan, between Turkey and Lebanon, in order to create a space for free uh, circulation of goods and people and Merchants, when you go to, to, as in my case, it happened twice in Ale Halep, in Aleppo market, which, which is destroyed now. I was stopped in every 10 meters by a group of people hugging and kissing, how are you doing, and so on. Who knew me from the television screens in Turkey? They were Tur Turkish businessmen from Urfa, Gaziantep, and so on. So, what are you doing? I was asking. Oh, when we come in the morning, we'll go back in the evening. So there is a lot of commercial activity in, in this sense. And uh, in Palmyra, I was meeting with Turkish uh, tourists coming with buses and taking pictures with their smartphones and memories. And so the Turks entered <coughs> to the region through tourism, through diplomacy, through commerce with trade which all together makes up soft power. So this was a new Turkey and new Turks, not coming with weapons or swords, with muscles and so on, with the military uniform, with bags, suitcases, files, pen, computers and so on. So that was an acceptable Turkey. Uh, uh, and it was this introduction of soft power which is unlike of the Turks, actually, in a way. Uh, and it's accepted. So it became a very successful Turkish regional presence, as it is sloganized as zero problems with neighbors. And really, we, we had no problems, as if we have uh, zero problems with the neighbors. But this happened under one condition. The Turkish government did not follow any policy of regime change or government change. It didn't ask for it. Whoever the government is, accepted as a legitimate government, recognized as such, to establish links. That means, in, in other words, Turkey accepted the regional status quo as it is. In order to enter into the region, it accepted the region as it is, in its status quo. So it was all right to be with the, the king of Saudi Arabia or whoever is in power in Syria, particularly that whoever has become the closest friend to Turkey's leaders. They were spending their vacations together. They, they became family friends. So it was fine whoever is in Baghdad, and I remember that 
Mr. Erdoğan coming out with Maliki. Uh, we were all waiting in the hall, in the Prime Ministry, in the Green Zone in Baghdad, and declaring to everybody that uh, it is two countries, one government. Because half of the Turkish government was meeting with half of the uh, Iraqi government, and they signed 48 agreements together. So he was declaring that we are two countries, one government. And the same was for Syria. There, there was an intergovernmental meeting in Halep. In the morning, after they have their lunch, they go to Antep, Gaziantep, 45 minutes away. They completed their meeting to Turkish and Syrian ministers. There. So, uh, uh, from the king of Saudi Arabia to the president of uh, Syria, from uh, the pre uh, prime minister of Iraq to the president of uh, Egypt, all were accepted, recognized. It is, in a sense, for Turkey to and also, Olmert was in Turkey very often. And Erdogan was received by Sharon when he was prime minister. So they were good with the Israelis also. That means, in the period of the recognition of the regional status quo, it worked, the policy of zero problems. What changed it? What the internet, Western media calls that Arab Spring changed it. But the interesting coincidence, which I think had to be noted, uh, the Arab Spring coincided with the ever-growing internal strength of Erdogan. So Arab Spring started in, in uh, late December 2010, in the beginning of January uh, 2011 in Tunisia, then in Egypt, then it moved to Libya, then by March 15, 2011, it knocked the doors of Syria from south, from Dara. Uh, that very year, 2010, Turkey saw the constitutional amendment referendum in, in uh, September that year, which gave 58% approval, and that 58% approval for Erdogan is interpreted as the balance of power in domestic terms in Turkey has drastically changed to the detriment of uh, the tutelage regime, as it is called by all of us in Turkey, which means military dash, uh, civilian bureaucracy. So that the Kemalist uh, <coughs> bureaucratic uh, state which stamped uh, its colors over Turkey uh, and whose uh, main pillar was the military is away. So that the civilian rule, the popular will, represented by uh, Justice and Development Party, and above all, represented in person by Tayyip Erdogan, won by a huge margin, 58 to, to whatever, 58 percent. And then, in the year 2011, in June, 
there were parliamentary elections and he won 50% of the votes. So the Turkey we used, all used to know and hear and uh, think about was over. We started in a new process which now they call it a new Turkey. So the, the Turkey which was found by Kemal Atatürk in the 20s after the World War I with ups and downs, different governments and whatever uh, reached uh, to a point to be replaced by a very new Turkey. So the, the beginning of it was it was late 2010 and the beginning 2011. So this domestic uh, but a drastic radical transformation coincided with the Arab Spring. With the Arab Spring I don't need to tell you what happened in the Arab Spring but, but when, when you look at it, Tunisia uh, Egypt. and Egypt and then Libya and, uh, the uh, protagonist of this new Turkey saw in Arab Spring a new region, a new world that they can sponsor. Because the ones that started to move to power positions were their ideological kinsmen. Nahta in Tunisia, Ikhwan in Egypt, and uh, after a, a wavering in, in Libya, the fortunes for Libyan Ikhwan was open. So then they elevated themselves or projected themselves, the Ashab al Karar in Turkey, as uh, the sponsor of change in the region. So the, the policy from uh, the introduction of Turkey's soft power, in a sense, uh, uh, the recognition of the status quo was replaced by being a proactive Turkey for change in the region, sponsoring the change. Because in every part of that change was taking place, uh, pro-Turkish organizations or groups, movements, parties that Turkey can, that the current uh, ruling party could feel very much in comfort at ease, was moving to the power. Uh, everything worked fine until Syria. The, the, the prestige of uh, Erdogan and Turkey was very high in Egypt particularly because only one week before uh, Mubarak was ousted, he came openly and asked for Mubarak to leave office and he was speaking of kafen and all these things that we will go with only one sheet of white uh, cloth into the grave. So what are you doing in power? Leave the power and so on. And it was televised live uh, in Tahrir Square. So he became the, the uh, man of the uh, Arab street. He was raising the banner of Gaza higher than anybody else. 
He didn't care disrupting the relations with Israel. It was already disrupted because of my this flotilla and all this, and 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 it helped uh, the the uh, deteriorating relationship with Israel helped him to project himself as being the <coughs> darling of the Arab street to 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 uh, raise the, the banner of Gaza and Palestinian struggle higher than anybody else. I remember in 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 a meeting again in Beirut in a of Carnegie Endowment with uh, the former German president Richard von Weizsäcker and several other people. There was somebody from Jordan uh, told at the panel, uh, it was a, a work, workshop, closed workshop, that in the last two months or so, 25% of the people or 30% of the newborn boys were named as Tayyip by their parents in, in, in Jordan. So I personally carried this word to him, for example. So I'm sure he was delighted about it. And, 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 and it was a confir confirmation of the, the correctness of the positions that he was taking vis-a-vis -vis Gaza, the Palestinian issue, or uh, to Middle East in, in, in general. So uh, in order to conceptualize, from uh, uh, the acknowledgment of regional status quo, Turkey moved, sponsoring the change, but change meant to be carrying Ikhwan to power where they are. So that Ikhwan was also in Syria, or outside of Syria mainly, but Turkey left its most traditional regional policy, not involving with the domestic affairs of its neighbors. For example, for decades, the Iraqi opposition against Saddam could not step their foot in Turkey. But Turkey, in the year 2011, after two forays, to, to, uh, three actually, to Damascus, to Sham, the first two by, by Ahmed Davutoglu, the foreign minister, one of them I was with, uh, Michel Nofel was uh, mentioning it during the introduction. He went second two times, and uh, the, the head of the Turkish intelligence meet, Hakan Fidan, uh, has become as uh, Erdogan's envoy. So they went three times to Sham from March, uh, beginning of April to August 2011, and they decided that this regime, we can't do anything else with it. And so they decided to host and organize the Syrian opposition in Turkey. So essentially, Syrian National Council was formed in Istanbul, and everybody knows that Syrians were calling it the Istanbul Council rather than uh, Syrian National Council. But the important thing here is not uh, the name or whatever. Uh, the backbone of that council was Syrian Ikhwan. If it would be fully secularist Syrians, I'm not sure that Turkey would be that enthusiastic to, to host the Syrian opposition. <coughs> so when looking at Tunis, the situation of, of Annahta, when uh, Erdogan's campaign team, election campaign team, is going to Egypt to, to help uh, Morsi and Ikhwan 
Chayrat Shatter, more, more than anybody else, by the way. Uh, so sponsoring Ikhwan's advent or move to, to power, uh, in a way, it was repeating in, in Syria by, by hosting and organizing a Syrian opposition whose backbone is uh, Ikhwan. And gradually, Turkey moved into the sectarian conflict in the region. It was not uh, at the beginning. I, 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 to be to be honest, I shouldn't call at the very beginning. Turkey had a sectarian approach because I remember that uh, in Iraq, for example, uh, again uh, April 2011. Uh, excuse me, March 2011, uh, uh, the last visit of Mr. Erdogan, it was uh, to Iraq, <laughs> he didn't go since then. Uh, he, would, he did go to Najaf to meet with Ayatollah Sistani. Uh, in Baghdad, on the way uh, to uh, Najaf, before going to the airport, we went first to Kazimiye, to pay respects to Imam Musa Kazim. Then we crossed the bridge from Kazimiye, the ones who know Baghdad can, uh, can visualize. Uh, we crossed the bridge over Dejle to Azamiye to visit Imam Azam's uh, mausoleum and the mosque. And uh, Imam Abu Hanifa is very sacred for Sunni Hanafis and more than anybody else for Mr. Erdogan. And it was his third visit to Baghdad. He had never been there. It was short working visits because of security and so on. And this visit, he wanted to go to, to uh, Imam uh, Abu Hanifa's uh, mausoleum, but he first visited Imam Musa Kazim. So he was a, it was a signal that he is as the leader of Turkey, about sectarian divide and he against sectarian divide also. And going to, to Sistani, uh, paying his respects to, 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 it's not only paying respects, he asked from him to be forthcoming to overcome the sectarian conflict in the region. So in a way, he was trying to, to, to employ, quote-unquote, uh, Ayatollah Sistani against the Iranian position. So the, the, the initial Turkish position was not a pro-sectarian in the sense that a pro-Sunni position. Yet, when the developments in Syria proved that the regime is not being able to be removed in months, and Syria has become a very ugly and dirty and bloody uh, proxy war, civil war or civil war within civil wars and and any semblance of a, a, a secular opposition was gone when we had uh, many uh, groups from Daesh to An-Nusra, from An-Nusra Ahrar al-Sham, Sukur al-Sham, Tawheed, Khataib al-Faruq, I don't know what, and so, Asharat, yani. <laughs> if not Alaf. <laughs> Fa, uh, but all of them were, were very Salafi and Islamist and, uh, and 
so the support was coming, the financial support or, or weaponry was, it's, it's an open secret from the Gulf, uh, from either Saudi Arabia, Qatar, altogether, uh, Emirates and Kuwait, and the logistics were provided from Turkish territory. So uh, it, it, it was an open secret. So, uh, and the, the uh, survival of the regime in Turkey during this uh, tendency to be involved in a sectarian conflict has become that as long as uh, the regime remains in, in place in, in Sham, there will be no uh, bright prospects for the survival of the regime in Turkey. Because as long as the, the situation corroborates, the uh, Syriate started to corroborate Turkey as well, in terms of sectarian divide in Turkey, Sunni, Alawi. And the Kurdish issue with a new dimension, uh, because when the central authority collapsed, or could not extend to every single part of uh, Syrian territory, the Kurds who inhabit the frontier areas with Turkey and comprise the majority in those areas, started to exercise a self-rule. But those Kurds are not mainly the good, good Turks for Turkey, who has become Barzani and his uh, people. Because in the meantime, when we started to lose our good neighborly relations with, with in the neighborhood we turned to be to have a, a, we transformed from the, uh, zero problems to zero neighbors it again changed we had only one good neighbor it was KRG the relations developed with KRG so it it has become and remained to be so until now with ups and downs still uh, KRG so, uh, the, but the ones in Syria was not KRG-dominated girls. Uh, the Kurdish organization was the twin brother or twin sister. I, uh, I was in United States uh, a week ago and in the State Department in a closed meeting when I said identical twins. Uh, the State Department people were a bit uneasy because they are trying to sell that PYD in Syria is different from PKK. So to legitimize their talks uh, with PYD, which happened over the developments of Kobani and Aydan Arab. Nevertheless, even if the Americans try to make themselves and everybody believe that they are different, they are identical twins. Because their leaders so, say so. I, I know personally all the leaders, and they are good friends, by the way, of PYD and PKK. So we know how it formed, and, and, and they, they don't deny it. The cell phone of Saleh Muslim, the co-chairman of PYD, that the wallpaper is, mine is my granddaughter. When Saleh Muslim opens his uh, cell phone, that the wallpaper is Abdullah Ocalan. For, for example, so, so, so it's obvious that there is no secret in it. And, and, and uh, anyway, so uh, 
the Syrian Kurds were under the influence of our bad Kurds that the regime was fighting since 30-40 years. Therefore, uh, uh, the Turkish-Syrian policy evolved to such a policy uh, that as long as the regime remained in place, it was infecting Turkey's Kurdish question, infecting again, quote-unquote, and uh, uh, reflecting in an uneasy uh, situation between Turkish Turkey Sunni and Alevi community <laughs> and in the big mass event of the last summer of Gezi Taksim Istanbul the it the, the epitome was Gezi Taksim but it was all over <coughs> Turkey for two weeks and it shook for the first time the foundations and the legitimacy of the, the uh, Erdogan rule Alevis en masse participated in it. And there were about 14 young people who got killed in those big events. By coincidence, maybe. May, most probably uh, by coincidence, but they're all Alevis, for example. So there is blood on the ground now. Because, and for Erdogan, Gezi was a big and foreign manipulated development to remove him a putsch attempt to remove him from power. So the situation in Syria polarized, started to polarize Turkey on sectarian basis and on ethnic basis in terms of the Kurdish question. And uh, with a self-confidence gained thanks to the elections that Erdogan came victorious from each one of them. He started to follow a policy of polarizing the country because leaving 50%, as long as he has a 50% for him, he wouldn't care less to leave the other 50% because that 50% was not homogeneous. So with his own 50% constituents in terms of ballot box, he legitimizes his rule in, in the eyes of the Western world and above everything else for Turkey itself. Uh, and then uh, he could follow whatever policy he wanted to follow in the region from the mandate he has taken from the people. Because whatever decision he makes, he interprets to the public, to the international public as well, that it is uh, the outcome of the political uh, will, the, of the, uh, uh, it's the, the outcome of the popular will. People is with him, so whatever he decides in foreign policy, it is what Turkish policy uh, people decides. It's very popular in, in that sense. So, he, and he pushed for it in Syria, which brought him into uh, conflict not only with Syria, but with the Western world as well. Because as much the regime remains in place and Turkey proved that it is not uh, in the position of removing Bashar by force, it needs more powerful international actors 
that is United States. So he wanted U.S. do the job, but not with boots on the ground, all right, by air operation and so on and so forth, but to put uh, the, the main aim of the American policy in the region as removal of the regime in Syria. However, we have Daesh on the ground as a new actor also. The Americans' priority is Daesh, not the regime. And Daesh, during the course of that Turkey dragged gradually, but surely, into the sectarian conflict, is one of those elements that the Turkish foreign policy instrumentalized. So I was confronted with very many questions in, in America last week, rationalizing many Americans, even Turks rationalizing that it would be to the best benefit of Turkey if in Aynal Arab or Kobani, <coughs> Turkey would take a different stand uh, because uh, it will uh, add more in, in internal stability and peace for Turkey, uh, secure its international uh, alignments better. And so why is this policy? So my simple answer, and I, I will be con concluding after two, three minutes what I intend to say. My, 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 uh, uh, my interpretation was that it is your rationalization. It's not the way that either Mr. Erdogan or Mr. Davutoglu is looking at the issue. Daesh, for them, is not a threat for Turkey as you interpret it as a threat for yourselves. Why? Because of three reasons, uh, or maybe more reasons. One, given in a situation that Americans do not have a strategy or appetite to remove the regime in Syria, and given uh, the, the weakness of the Syrian armed opposition to constitute a challenge for the regime in Syria, anybody who is willing to fight against the regime can be and should be instrumentalized by Turkey. Daesh is one of them. Al-Nusra is another. Ahrar Asham was one of them. Tawhid was, was one of them. Because they, the, the was and was, was are no existent, non-existent. That's why I'm uh, speaking with past tense. Anyway, so uh, they needed it in Turkey, the presence of Daesh to be instrumentalized vis-a-vis -vis Sham. And given in a sectarian conflict atmosphere of the region, and given the frictions between Turkey and Baghdad, and that Baghdad is Shia-dominated Baghdad in the eyes of Ankara, Again, it constitutes a menace to Baghdad. So it's not an enemy per se for Turkey. Apart from Sham, also for Baghdad it is instrumented. Number three, yes, Turkey is involved in a peace process with Öcalan, but it's at the very, very initial steps of it, and we don't know yet how far it will go. And uh, Turkey, the Turkish establishment, the Turkish state, plus uh, the, the, the current uh, ruling party and the government, 
does not do not have the appetite to see a federal Turkey or confederal Turkey and uh, which could be the, the maximalist demand of the PKK PYD type of Kurdish movements. So in that respect also Daesh is instrumental to use as a stick over the Kurds to contain them and if they are exercising a self-rule in Kobani for example as a precedent for Turkey's Kurds in the future if that self-rule evaporates if Kobani falls to, to Daesh so be it uh, well then Turkey will be neighbors to Daesh it is neighbors with Daesh already in, in Tel Aviv who is controlling Tel Aviv, who is controlling Jarablus, Azaz. So, uh, and more importantly, or equally important maybe, when, for example, uh, 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 Daesh had captured Mosul uh, and took Turkish diplomats hostage, the Turkish official parlance was not very uh, hostile. Not because only that there were Tur Turkish hostages that Turkey cares for. In a way, in a part, yes, but also as Davutoğlu interpreted the situation, he said Daesh is the, out the result of the discriminatory Shiite policies of the regime in Baghdad. If there would be no... Uh, which is, in a way, true, in a way, not the full truth. Uh, but if the, the Prime Minister of Turkey is underlining that Daesh is the result of the discrimination done by the Shia government in Baghdad, it has a different connotation, of course. And also, when uh, it comes to Syria, if there would be no atrocities of Bashar regime in Syria, there would be no Daesh as we used to see it in Syria which is a very contestable uh, argument, of course, because as long as you can't erase Ibn Taymiyyah from history, as long as you can't undo Wahhabism from this earth, the, the background or the roots of Daesh will always be. So Daesh is not an automatic product of the regime in Sham or in Baghdad. There is the ideological background and, and many other reasons, but the, the uh, emphasis of Turkey is, is uh, very much uh, to this uh, sectarian uh, argument uh, concerning Daesh. And Daesh, in that sense, is not uh, a real sense of threat in the way the Westerners see it, so that it reflects in the Turkish non-cooperation or less cooperation. In, in terms of the fight vis-a-vis -vis Daesh, which is uh, U.S.-led, uh, which is waged by the U.S.-led uh, coalition. Uh, just I will touch upon one, two issues and I, I will end up. Uh, uh, two things which uh, I will, I'm thinking that would be interesting for you. One is, uh, it, uh, in the last uh, foreign affairs issue, online, but not the print issue. Online, uh, there is a section called Snapshot. In that snapshot, uh, two Turkish academics who are in United States, 
One of them I know personally, and I, I, I exchanged letters with them very recently. Uh, they made a survey, uh, and they printed it, two, three pages report, uh, on online foreign affairs. The title is Radical Turks, Why Turkish Citizens Are Joining ISIS, Daesh. So uh, they found out that more than 1,000 Turks are in Daesh, hundreds in Al-Nusra, and so they made a field survey. They met 120 of them in Turkey or elsewhere. So they knew them, these two gentlemen knew them in person. Uh, they are not very sure whether it could be generalized because they haven't spoken everyone of them, everyone Turk who participated in Daesh. But from the 120, the results are mind-boggling. It is not that they are misled people, uh, poor, coming from poverty, from the, the slums of Istanbul or elsewhere in Turkey. It's not. Uh, they are mostly married, belonging to middle classes. There are some among them lawyers, small businessmen. They have businesses. I mean, they are not in, 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 in need of money or food. Uh, again, mostly married with children. The average age is 27, not very young, because there are many volunteers in PYD fighting from Turkey, in Aynal Arab, Kobani. They are all uh, bachelors, young men and young women, early 20s. For Daesh, half of them are Kurds, by the way, the ones come going from Turkey. Nearly half, 50% are Turks, coming from uh, mainly middle classes, middle income families. So it is mainly ideological motivation this jihadism that attracted, attracted them, the, the idea of an Islamic state, caliphate, which attracted them. But how come uh, it happened to be? It is, they say, thanks to the, the conclusion is thanks to the Justice and Development Party government. How? When they pushed the military back and they secured the power in Turkey, uh, they expanded the civilian uh, zone and so the fraternities, brotherhoods, associations, clubs, social clubs could activate without the suppression of the police or the military and so on. So as much uh, civil society expanded and as much the repression was out, as much you, you could enjoy liberties, in an ever-growing religiously society, those tendencies can also grow and find for itself an umbrella. Of course, this observation should not lead us that so we have to have a dictatorial regime and put everybody in, in prison and kill them and so on. The freedoms are not good. But they say if 
the checks and balances mechanisms of a democracy does not exist. The institutions, checks and balances institutions of a democracy are not strong enough or non-existent. Then uh, liberties in a Muslim society uh, ends up uh, in a situation where there are tens or hundreds or thousands of people uh, coming from well-to-do families even, but ideologically motivated to, to participate in Daesh, in the regional uh, activity. So uh, this brings us another uh, big issue, which I started in Turkey to, to uh, poke my finger on it, that is the period for moderate Islam is over, because it's not a matter of Daesh. What about moderate Islam? Because Turkey used to serve as a role model for the entire region and particularly for the uh, countries to be taken by Ikhwan type of governments. Uh, it was a non-violent, uh, more flexible uh, function and model for the world. So uh, it was, uh, this model was uh, encouraged by the Western world, by the United States as well, under the title Moderate Islam. So we are all against extremism and we are all for moderate Islam. But if the Turkish experiment <coughs> under this ruling party, Fasha, then, and look what's happening about Nahda, what happened to Ikhwan in Egypt? and what's going on in Syria. So in Syria, Ikhwan and all those groups were taken over by Daesh and Nusra and so on and so forth. So, and referring to the example I have given about these groups, people uh, going as volunteers to Daesh, does that mean that uh, uh, moderate Islam prepares a good ground for Muslim extremist activism. So is moderate Islam a transitional element? And one last note, uh, I said some of you before this meeting already, and I, I, I tell it openly everywhere, uh, in order to define the relationship between the current government in Turkey and Daesh, I say, they are kinsmen, they are relatives. Of course they are not the same thing. Turkey is not Daesh. Daesh is not AKP. But it's like Schengen visas, I said. So, I mean, Finland is very different from Greek, Greece. Spain is very different from Bulgaria. Irish are very different from German. But if you get a Schengen visa, you don't stop at customs or passport control, you move. So when you get in the big Sunni, Salafi infected realm, you can move freely from Daesh to, to, to next to Erdogan or from next Davutoglu all the way to, to Daesh. It's possible. Everything is, nothing is impossible, I would say.
ممكن نعمل طبعا في كثير ناس كثير بيناتكم مهتمين يطرحوا اسئله ف بقترح جوله واحده من الاسئله مش جولتين وبنهايه هاي الجوله جنجيز ممكن يجاوب يعمل يعني جواب بيغطي كل كل الاسئله المطروحه اللي بحب ياخذ قهوه او شاي خلال الفيوز الجوي. جيد هذا. انا ولا حد الاخر؟ انا What is the Okay. 
I'm afraid I might be misunderstood, so let me clear that uh, it is my responsibility if I caused any misunderstanding. Uh, there is, of course, a huge difference between uh, the way you, me, or many other peoples feel or understand Islam or Daesh and all, all those things. And so in that sense, there is, there is, it's the same thing. When you said that uh, the, you may not see Daesh as we see it here. No, we see Daesh exactly as you see it here. Very extremist and so on and very medieval. I mean, it depends on who are we. Uh, and even even the, the, the people in the government, uh, I don't mean that uh, Erdogan or Davutoğlu or others, that they, they are so happy to see people's heads cut off with a sword and uh, uh, swung like this. I mean, of course not. I mean, the, the, and this man uh, owes his political success to, to uh, what? Elections, votes, and so uh, it is ana uh, it is uh, 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 very anachronistic for him this vision, and that's why from time to time they they speak of terrorists, the, the Daesh terrorists, and so on. So I don't want to be unfair or unjust to our president or the, to our uh, prime minister. Yet, what I'm trying to say that. Yes, it is political Islam. Uh, this segment or that uh, vector, whatever, it's both we could uh, the, uh, summarize them under the uh, hat of political Islam. Uh, what uh, I tried to, to bring uh, into attention to, to just uh, uh, to trigger off uh, a real uh, debate and thinking that uh, whether moderate Islam is tenable, whether it is plausible or given the conditions in the region or maybe inherent in what, as you said, political Islam is, that uh, inevitably it might leave uh, way uh, to the development of, of, of uh, the phenomena like Daesh, particularly the new generations, are not very much interested in, in uh, this moderate form of Islam and so on. That they, uh, all over from Europe, in our lands, because the the people that uh, Daesh attracts, it, they come from Morocco, they come from Muslim communities in in Europe, in United States, everywhere. And and uh, I just made the, the figures of the Turkish. The academics survey that it's high, 27, but it's relatively high uh, con uh, concerning the Kurds. Otherwise, 27 is a very young age also, and, and even below 70, 27, there are many people coming from Tunisia, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, from Muslim lands. Uh, no matter whether they are, it's a Wahhabi country like Saudi Arabia or democratic country like Turkey or an aspiring country like Tunisia or the mildest form if you would see ex being exercised in Morocco these countries are leading in terms of Daesh volunteers Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, Morocco and Turkey one was an Arab Spring country the Arab is 
the other is Morocco is under the enlightened king. The the the, the, the one of uh, the other is the the uh, uh, Saudi octogenarian king. The where Wahhabism is then in Turkey, the country, the inheritor of Ottomans that fought against Wahhabists and a democratic country, and still there is a, a, a wave, a tide in the young generation moving towards uh, Daesh. So we have to think what this moderate Islam is, it, it ever exists or will it ever exist or uh, so there is an ideological crisis of political Islam. We have, we, we have to face it. If it uh, and uh, the, although my uh, uh, the profession is journalism, I would ask you at this moment a very off the record thing. Uh, now, from you, yeah, you can tell your wives or husbands, but um, <laughs> don't print it. Or, or uh, five, five days ago in in, in uh, uh, Halifax, Canada, there was an international meeting. Our former president, former meaning, until three months ago, he was the president for seven years, and he is from Justice and Development Party, Abdullah Gül. He was there. So on, on Saturday night, according to the rules of uh, that Halifax Forum, uh, groups are being formed. You first, uh, uh, there are different topics. You just sign one of them, and in one restaurant, under that topic, five, 15, 20 people, 10 people gather and discuss. Very many topics. Uh, I had signed the political Islam question mark one. And there was another Turkish friend, a former member of parliament from that party. He had also signed political Islam. So we were having coffee with Abdullah Gül and it was time to go. So we stood up and we asked Abdullah Gül, aren't you coming? He said, where are you going? To political Islam. He said, I signed for some, some, something else, energy. He said, I'm going to the energy one. Then he, he smiled and he said, what should I do at the political Islam workshop? Should I tell them the failure of political Islam as a political Islamist, he said. So if somebody like Abdullah Gül saying it, that he is declining to go to a workshop to discuss political Islam because he feels that there is a failure of political Islam, and he doesn't conceal that. He, he was and he still is a political Islamist, we can come to the conclusion that uh, there is a deep ideological uh, issue before us. It has to be discussed and uh, the only thing, again, to, to underline, I was trying to emphasize that uh, an Islamist government or political party is the one we have in, in, even in power now in Tur nowadays in Turkey, it's a, a good platform to move around. It doesn't uh, have very defined and very controlled, closed and locked borders that nobody uh, moving on that platform can go to, to extremist uh, uh, attractions of uh, political Islam. That's, that, that was the point I was trying to make. Otherwise, there is huge difference, of course, and I'm a Muslim by birth, and uh, I can't say that Islam means extremism 
So I am born as a Muslim. What can I do? And I'm not an extremist. I have some extreme views, but I'm not a, a brutal, savage person. I am so, uh, but I have to reconcile my religion and myself with something different than Daesh. When I am in problem, also, uh, so uh, they are different. Uh, I agree with you. And uh, again, I just wanted to, to, to emphasize the, the mobility. In, in this realm, that not more than that. Uh, coming from the the, the, the first question, uh, it's very crucial to understand today's Turkey. Both parts of your question, the Turkey-Iran relations after Arab Spring did not change its essence. The Turkish-Arab, uh, Turkish-Iran, Turkey-Iran relations from the time of Ottomans and Safavids. Even before, from the Persian Empire to Hellenistic empires, it's always the same. Two geopolitical poles, whether it is Persians or Hellens, Greeks, or whether it is Safavids, more Turks than Ottomans, they were purer because they were the, the Safavids were Turks. The wives also were of the Safavid emperors were Turks. In Ottomans, the wives were converts mainly. Uh, Serb, Greek, <coughs> whatever, Macedonian, Charkas. Uh, so, uh, in terms of pure Turkishness, Safavids were more Turks, Turks in pure Turks. But the difference and uh, the, the political geopolitical difference was based ideologically upon Shia and Sunnah. But ever since and even before there is competition between Turkey and Iran as Michel uh, spelled in the uh, pronounced in the introductory remarks that every inch of the territory of the Middle East and North Africa or in the Islam, Muslim world, this competition is there and will be going on forever. However, from the year 1639, uh, uh, from the, the signing of the Qasr-Shirin Treaty between Turkey and Iran, they, they know one thing very well, both Turks and Iranians. They compete within certain rules without fighting against each other, without confronting each other. And, and uh, they compete with respecting each other at the same time. Uh, for example, Iran is the, the Turkey is one of the biggest recipients of Iranian oil. Uh, nearly 40 percent of the oil uh, Turkey imports is from Iran, and also also natural gas. And even in the, the times of the acute competition or rivalry, more than competition of two countries on the territory of Syria and Iraq, this uh, transaction, the, the commercial transactions, were respected and still going on. It, it will be the case. So it was so, the Turkish-Iranian relationship, and it will be so. Competition within a framework and uh, within uh, the certain rules. So in that sense, the Arab Spring uh, uh, did not bring a very radical new element, but it it uh, it uh, 
emphasize even stronger the competition between the two over Syria, for example. Uh, uh, in Iraq, it was already there, and Turks, uh, uh, because the Sunni element was lost, and that's one of the reasons they moved towards the Kurds to to counter to to be uh, to take part in the new power configuration of Iraq because for from the uh, time immemorial until very recently Iraq was ruled by Sunnis whether they were Abbasids or Ottomans or Baathists whoever it was a Sunni rule over the territory called Iraq. And for the first time ever since the American invasion, since 2003, it is a Shia-Kurdish power configuration. And, and Turks, being exempt of the Sunni element, moved the other Sunnis, the Kurds, and came over their uh, ethnic allergies and so on, and also they smelled the uh, oil and natural gas which is abundant in, underneath uh, Kurdistan of Iraq. It, 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 is, it, it is a very important dimension as well. Given the, the uh, aspirations of Turkey to be among the first ten most, uh, the largest economic uh, powers in the world in the year 2023, which would be the anniversary of the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Republic of Turkey. So, uh, if we move from this sentence to uh, your earlier part of your question, what is what about this new Turkey that you speak of? What are the main differences with the old one? It's not me uh, speaking about new Turkey. It is the slogan of Tayyip Erdogan and his followers. I am just ينقل يعني هذا الكلام. Yeah, But they 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 subscribe to it. I'm in the publications, pro 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 party, pro government, and so on. In the, in the television uh, uh, talk shows, there is a lot of reference to New Turkey, and there are new people presented. Uh, those uh, who wanted to, to, to cancel us from public life, from intellectual life, they say these are the new young intellectuals of new Turkey, which means don't listen to those old uh, sharks anymore, the, those dinosaurs, they don't, they don't represent anything. So we are uh, portrayed, I am among those, as, as a person, as an individual among those, who are in, uh, presented as dinosaurs, not to be listened or cared about, but because there is a new Turkey and th there are new young intellectuals of Turkey, which are, to my taste, are new Goebbels of Turkey, many. They are propagandists, they are not inter intellectuals, they are propagandists uh, in the name. But uh, when they speak of New Turkey and the, the president himself, most of his speeches refer to that new Turkey. That is uh, uh, the way he wants to present himself and the country in a sense of a total departure from the one in he inherited. 
which is the Kemalist Republic in Turkey. So that's why he emphasizes that there is a new Turkey. New Turkey means the Turkey of Tayyip Erdogan. And, and that Tayyip Erdogan is, has become a larger-than-life figure. Uh, he wants uh, a presidential system, but not the one like in the United States, because in a meeting some years ago that I was also present, he said that he is not interested in an American type of presidential system because there is Congress there, and if an opposition party wins the legislative branch, this counterbalance to the executive, he said we can't do anything then. So he wants to be a president with full powers, uh, no checks and balances, and the most he has in mind, if there should be a, a, a similarity, the ones like in South America, those Cadillo type of Chavez, for example, is a good example, or Putin is a good example, the, 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 minim, the minimum should be the French type of presidential system. So he wants to steer the country into presidential system. For that, he needs to change the constitution. To change the constitution, he needs his party that now, according to the constitution, he had to resign because uh, the president cannot be a party member. He's against this constitution clause. Nevertheless, he had to abide by it, and, and he put Ahmed Davutoglu in his place, and he became president. He was elected president, but he wants to, to supply himself with legal powers, and therefore there needs a constitutional amendment, and in order to have a constitutional amendment, you have to have the majority in the parliament, and for that, you have to win the next elections. Uh, then the, there will be a big, huge step to be taken forward on the road to new Turkey, which, which is synonymous, which means the Turkey of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And there are very interesting symbols of that new Turkey. For example, uh, this huge presidential palace constructed in Ankara. It's very, symbolically, it's very, very interesting. I wrote down an article that they went mad that uh, aesthetically and in terms of the size, it looks like Ceausescu's <laughs> construction in, in, in Bucharest, but he couldn't enjoy it much. Uh, the, uh, but that kind, kind of edifices, that kind of ar architectural designs, you can only find in authoritarian and totalitarian systems and regimes. It also gives clue to the authoritarian intentions, tendencies of Tayyip Erdogan, which he has. Apparently he has. Uh, but the interesting symbol in, uh, related to, to New Turkey, this concept of New Turkey, is that Çankaya, the presidential seat at the top of a hill in Ankara, uh, which Atatürk was there and every president was there, including Abdullah Gül. He lived there, and Abdullah Gül is from the same party, and stay, he stayed there for seven years. So, Cankaya is, you don't, in Turkish, when you speak or write, when you say Cankaya, you don't speak of a neighborhood like Babda. You don't speak of Babda. It's presidency. It's, it's like Elysee. It's like White House. It's like Kremlin. 
but he left Chankaya. He will never step his foot to Chankaya, and he constructed this huge uh, edifice. Uh, who call, and called it Aksaray. Ak means white, and the initials of his party. Saray means palace. You know, so white palace. This is the white palace, Aksaray. But where did he construct this? In the Atatürk farm area. The, the, that area of Ankara was known as Atatürk farm. Even in the buses and so on, it writes Atatürk forestry farm, where there are zoos, restaurants, and public places. So they are all raised. And now there is this Aksaray, and there is no reference left to, to Atatürk farm. There is no such a thing, because over the entire farm, this palace is constructed. So it, it erases from the memory not only Chankaya is the presidential seat, but the name Atatürk, in a way. It will, be, it will not be a reference point. In Istanbul, there is a presidential retreat. Uh, the Huber uh, Palace, it is as known. Uh, it is the presidential retreat since 1985. Many presidents, Kenan Evren was there. Abdullah Gül, whenever he was in Istanbul, he always stayed there. Bashar Assad, when he was hosted, he stayed there. Not in a hotel, but there. Any, any, uh, anybody, the German president a month ago, he was there. Uh, Wilhelm Gauck. So Tayyip Erdogan will not go there also. He is uh, reconstructing Vahdettin uh, Palace. Who is Vahdettin? The, the, the last Ottoman uh, Sultan before Atatürk. There are so many Sultans and they have uh, these palaces and so on. So if you want the renewal, go for Abdul Hamid or Abdul Majid or Abdul, I, I don't know. Uh, no, Vahdettin, the last one. So when he moves to Istanbul, he will stay there. In Ankara, Aksaray, not Çankaya anymore, over Atatürk farm. When he will go to Istanbul in Vahdettin's palace. So, New Turkey will be left, will, will go on from where it was left. It was left at the end of the Ottoman Sultan Vahdettin. So, so these are symbolisms uh, uh, that New Turkey, which makes it different, it will be the authoritarian regime of Turkey with Tayyip Erdogan at the helm. This is New Turkey. Or this is the New Turkey we see and we and we, we we say we don't want this New Turkey. We want a New Turkey, but another type of New Turkey. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, I have, I have uh, two small questions. The first one, you didn't speak uh, about the contradiction between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. And I think these contradictions uh, are very uh, important uh, in order to see the Syrian situation and in order to fix out what is this Islamic thing. Because uh, 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 as we all know, Islam, political Islam was totally destroyed after First World War. And the only place where political Islam continued was Saudi Arabia or the United but everywhere else it was totally destroyed, from Turkey to Iran to Egypt. And uh, this Islamic revival 
uh, in the in the Shiite context took a, a new form. What we have now is a new Shiism based upon Wilayat Fakir. This is something totally uh, innovated by Khomeini. Whereas in the Sunni resurrection, revivalism. What do we have? We have we have Erdogan who is more Ceausescu than a caliph, as we have described, which is totally different. And we have the pragmatic politics of Turkey uh, in the sense that using the Muslim Brotherhood, although when Erdogan went to Cairo, if you remember, and he made that speech, the Muslim Brothers of Cairo, of Egypt, were very, very angry with him. Yes. Because he spoke about a, a secular society and an Islamic, uh, 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 not state, an Islamic... Uh, Values. Secular state. Secular state and an Islamic society. And, and so he was trying to, to manage the contradictions of Sunni Islam, which, of course, is very complicated. And he will find himself using Daesh or not Daesh. And Daesh and Nusra, both, who are coming from Qaeda, from a Saudi origin, but not Saudi now anymore, they are based upon the theory of, uh, of uh, what's his name, Abu Bakr al-Naji, about managing surgeries. This is the book of Bakr al-Naji, which is the major theoretical book uh, upon which the Daesh Nusra uh, 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 ideological approach is working. So we have a world which is not coherent. And, and I'm afraid that you are trying to put coherence on something which is not workable yet. So I think the, polit the Turkish polit politics is more uh, uh, someone trying to find his way, which is very similar to, to, to all the uh, international politics regarding religion, because nobody is understanding what's going on, neither them nor we. Yes. Yes, you. You look so. <laughs> well, uh, the Prime Minister of my country is one very dear friend of so anyway, uh, well, uh, may I ask about the uh, uh, Yulena? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, is it the uh, some well, effective counter power for the country? Whether Yulena uh, moment can can ever come back to power? You mean? Oh, okay. Or the, maybe they have some supporters. Mm. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Elias. Uh, the chair of the Well, Elias, question is very uh, pressing issue. Uh, Again, for 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 many reasons. Let me briefly touch upon those. The, the contradiction between Turkey and Saudi Arabia is apparently reflected itself when Morsi was removed and the ways were open for for Sisi. So from that time on, Turkey and Saudis broke. Not only Turkey and Saudis broke, Turkey and Emirates also broke. Uh, let, let me just, uh, it came to my mind immediately, 
let me share an anecdote with you. One of the biggest conglomerates, business conglomerates in Turkey had invited me uh, when they had their annual meeting in Palandöken Mountain somewhere in Erzurum, far away from Istanbul. They have an annual meeting of their CEOs and then they bring a keynote speaker on an issue uh, apart from their own meeting. So this year they called me few months ago that was, and uh, the situation in the Middle East and so on and so forth. So the, all the CEOs, and it's one of the two largest conglomerates in Turkey, and they told me that a group of them were in Riyadh a week ago, and, uh, and they had a, a, a one, one billion dollar contract, one enormous contract, and so they learned that it's cancelled. They said, why, why, what's the reason? I mean, because uh, we always delivered you in time and so on, and in the quality, we had never problems. They said, because of your uh, government's policy vis-a-vis -vis Egypt. They said, a week ago, under the same uh, pretext, we had another contract at the same level was cancelled in Abu Dhabi or Dubai. So in a week, twice, <laughs> losing that much money because of the government's Egyptian policy, which they had nothing to do with it, this group. And they said, we are... We are also very much against our <laughs> government's policy uh, uh, on Egypt. But why are you punishing us for that? We are on, on the same line with you. We have the same wavelength with you. They said collateral damage. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what Saudi said. And, uh, uh, so from that time on, uh, in the initial uh, part of the presentation, I was trying to make that I uh, underlining. I was underlining that Turkey, while trying, uh, decided to become the sponsor of sponsor of change. It literally transformed itself to be sponsors of Ikhwan, wherever they are. Uh, so uh, again, let me make a detour and make a reference, and then come back. For example, uh, a very close good friend of mine who is the Minister of Culture nowadays, although I don't see him since some time, but he was a really good friend of mine. I heard him saying twice in two different occasions in international meetings that for us uh, the Arab Spring did not start in, in Tunisia. It started the day Hamas won the elections in, 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 in Palestinian territories. So Hamas and election winning and these these, these are the, the very important symbols for the ruling party in Turkey and in, in because of that they were very keen to sponsor uh, the elections in Tunisia and in Egypt and and the, the power of uh, Morsi in order to justify their own uh, running Turkey. Uh, 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 so. When uh, Mursi was ousted, uh, it became more Ikhwan than Ikhwan itself, the Turkish government. And that was the, the point when they fell out with Saudis and, and, and 
and uh, Emirat Emirates. It reflected, of course, on the, on the uh, Syrian situation. In the meetings of the Syrian uh, revolutionary opposition forces, blah blah, there are always. I don't. I, I I lost the track. How many times they make elections to to elect a new chairman and so on and so forth? Uh, Turkey always supports the Qatari candidate, while Saudis and Emirates are for somebody else. For, there was, I am not sure whether he's still around. There was this Ahmed Jarba, for example. He, he was from uh, Haseki, and I told to George Sabra once that the. the Leader of the, the chairman of the, the Syrian National Council, who is, you, you know, who George Sabra is. I said, how come a, a Syrian opposition can have somebody not from Sham, not from Halep, not from Homs as a leader? I'm not very intelligent. I'm somebody from the uh, that tribe, Shammar tribe, close to the Syrian border. He said it was a Saudi choice. They won over the Qatari choice. <laughs> so you, your people were supporting the Qatari one. And so it was always the case. Therefore, the Turkish-Saudi uh, contradictions reflected itself in two different Sunni axes in the region. Turkey-Qatar, Saudi, Saudis with Emirates, in a way, Kuwait and so on and so on. But uh, this is uh, disastrous in the sense that if Turkey would inherit the Ottoman Empire and if you would have aspirations as the in, with the legacy of the Ottoman Empire, you can't reconcile yourself to be a sub-Sunni axis in the entire region with Qataris. It is funny, I mean, you can't do this. It's, it's injustice. It's injustice to yourself, to the people of this region, to the history to everything. Uh, but uh, this uh, rift is deep, but it, it's not uh, uh, other than the, the, the cleavage between Ikhwan and Saudis. Whatever the cleavage between Saudi Wahhabism and Ikhwan, it is there. It doesn't reflect very much on uh, the uh, Daesh thing. Daesh is another phenomenon, I think. If, if, if you make a... Uh, 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 Comparison. <laughs> if you make a comparison between Ikhwan or Turkish position and, and, and the Wahhabi position on Daesh, Daesh is another phenomenon as far as I, I can see it. And there the Saudi money and the Turkish intelligence networking can both function for Daesh, it's, it, it is something else, but the, the, the contradiction is there. Coming to, to uh, uh, and yes, the, the final point, which is very important, you said that the Turks are not much different than the rest, that they don't know where they are going. Absolutely correct, absolutely correct. That, that's the situation. But it is correct for everybody, for Americans as well. For example, when I was, again, this is a highly off-the-record reference I will be making with about Abdullah Kül. When I was having a long conversation with him some weeks ago, and we were talking on Syria, and he told me that he has a different position than 
President Erdogan, because Erdogan was president then, he was the he was eleventh president. Erdogan has become the twelfth. So when I was speaking uh, with the eleventh one, he said he differs from the twelfth one and on the Syrian position and the the current prime minister who who he himself picked him up from the academy and brought. He wasn't uh, Erdogan's man. He was Gül's man, but now. He left Gül, of course, understandably, uh, uh, and he became the prime minister. Uh, and uh, he, 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 so I said, well, what's your uh, difference? Why you have a different position on Syria? And he, he told me that, I told several times in, in close meetings also that you don't have an exit, what is our exit strategy? I was asking to them. What is Turkey's exit strategy? in Syria. No, there, there, was, there, is, there was no exit strategy and there still is no exit strategy. And he said, can you imagine that you are entering into a quagmire called Syria, all layered full with mines, without any exit strategy? Then you can't exit. If you don't have an exit strategy in Syria, you, you can't exit. And then you are in trouble. Uh, I said, are you serious about this objection? He said, why not? Said, you, America do not have also, does not have also an exit strategy. I said, when it comes to Syria, what is the American exit strategy in Syria? They don't have a strategy, first of all. <laughs> Secondly, they don't have an exit strategy. Like anybody else, everybody around <laughs> has no strategy, no exit strategy. He said, yes, but... America is far away. Secondly, it is the superpower. For its own errors, we pay the price. They don't pay the price, we pay the price. And it's too, too far away from the region. We are in the region. So anyway, what I will come that it's true that the Turkish leadership also lost on the road. They don't, they don't know where they are going. They pretend, of course, that they know what they are doing. But as anybody else in this region, they are lost, every, as every one of us. They are, not, uh, they are not privileged because they are ruling the country and we are the ruled ones. We, we are all lost. We don't know where we are going and how we are going and trying to understand or cap, capture the moment. About the Gülen moment, I think uh, there was a lot of uh, misunderstanding outside of Turkey as if Gülen group was uh, in a power game to remove Tayyip Erdogan and to replace him. This is uh, the argument Tayyip Erdogan used to justify his uh, moves over this Gülen group. Uh, because he claimed that there was a coup attempt against him. Uh, to me, the coup was done by, by Erdogan himself, and I, I, I again put it as a, being a, a former, maybe still somewhat Marxist. Uh, I said, from Louis Bonaparte's 18th Brumaire to Tayyip Erdogan's 17th December. So he was the, the president, uh, Louis Bonaparte, an elected president. He made a coup and declared himself as an emperor. 
So Tayyip Erdoğan claimed that there was a coup attempt against him and he made a coup actually and he opened his way for an authoritarian one man type of leadership, Tayyip Erdoğan rule. Uh, but this needs debate, uh, maybe I am wrong, but at least uh, even if there were uh, some uh, truth in, in uh, Gülen Mumun's actions, uh, and there were uh, in, the, in the sense that the, the uh, police intelligence and many departments of the police, anti-terror, and there are narcotics, many different departments of police, the security, not the national intelligence meet. Uh, the police security is uh, uh, dominated by Gülen, Gülen elements and the judiciary. In many parts of the judiciary, prosecutors, judges, and so on, and uh, they are well placed in it. So uh, when there is this corruption case opened in December 17 last year, uh, and which would be leading to Erdogan's own son, he would end up in prison. And all these tapes were circulated, and everybody knows that they are true. So the corruption was to the, up to the eyeballs uh, for some. And in a democratic country where the rule of accountability is functioning, you can't stay in government, of course. In that sense, he could rightly interpret it as a coup against him. However, who would replace him? Gülen? It's not a political party. There are no political elements that would replace any, any power in Turkey. It was a power struggle within the state bureaucracy. Very acute power struggle uh, within the state bureaucracy and simultaneously between the different Islamist brotherhoods and networks. Gülen is a, one network, very efficient, well spread, uh, powerful, but this ruling party, Justice and Development Party, actually is a confederation of different tariqats, neighborhoods, and so on and so forth. Gülen was one of them, and the most efficient and powerful of them within the state institutions. So all the other groups against them were united uh, under Erdogan to be against them, so uh, since then, since over a year, uh, the Gülenist elements who were in the police are nearly wiped out, all of them. Uh, sometimes when uh, we get together with Gülenist guys, we make jokes about the massacre that happened <laughs> in, in, in the security apparatus and it is starting now in the judiciary. It already started, but it, it is not that easy in the judiciary as it was in police, but in police, totally suppressed to the extent that they were told, telling us, those Gülenist guys, that nobody left who is fasting in Ramadan and, and uh, going to, to mosque for Friday prayers, Salat-ı Cuma. Eyvahat, yani bir Salat-ı Cuma, eyvahat, bir sum, bir şahre Ramadan, rah. Mis bir sebep. 
مش بسبب مندوب للحركه الجولان شك عليهم اذا شكوك حول شكوك حولهم يعني يعني ان ذات سانس ات از فيري سيكولاريزد كوت اند كوت بوليس ثينك وي هاف تو Well, I think the most uh, impressive uh, moment uh, would be the outcome of the upcoming parliamentary elections in June, because uh, it is interesting in the sense that uh, whatever the result would become after that elections, the new Turkey would be a different Turkey. Whether it will e e either really new or something else, because uh, these elections for Erdogan is the elections to have a, a, a majority of his party, the party he was obliged constitution to resign, to get the majority in the parliament in order to amend the constitution for presidential powers to be vested upon him. Uh, if he gets it, uh, that result, then your your question, Allah barif. But there is another subtext to it. Davutoğlu has no uh, political experience as a politician or a party leader and so on. When Erdogan made him prime minister, he was handpicked. He has to be very sure of his loyalty, or he has to have some uh, uh, weapons in his own hands if he uh, performs any sort of disloyalty. He will pay for it. Otherwise, why? Because Erdogan, in the positive sense of the Uh, world is the greatest political animal that Turkey ever produced in the last 30-40 years. He is a great political animal. He never makes mistakes in political calculations and so on. He is genial in that sense. So if he brought Davutoğlu, we assume that he knows something why he brought him. He has to be very sure of his loyalty and so on and so forth. But many people are not that sure of Davutoğlu's loyalty because Davutoğlu also is a very aspiring, ambitious person. Uh, opposite to Erdogan's background, he has an impeccable academic background, very knowledgeable person. While Erdogan doesn't know anything in terms of in terms of letters, he knows everything. Davutoğlu. So. But he is not proven as a party leader. What is, what from where Erdogan's strength comes? He won every election. Yeah. So now Davutoğlu will be running for the election after Erdogan, and if he gets a close percentage as Erdogan, that means he is over 18 year old. <laughs> he proved himself as a man, as a leader. Then what will he owe to? to Uh, Erdogan, because on the paper, if look, you look at the constitution, the executive power is mainly in the hands of the prime minister, not in the hands of the president. So a successful Davutoğlu 
why he should amend the constitution to give all his powers according to the constitution to Erdogan. What for? So there could be a, there, I don't say that there will be, but there could be a rift after the elections. If the elections are not won by a safe majority for the ruling party, if there would be coalition governments and so on, then forget about the constitutional changes, everything, and forget about the, the power of the uh, Justice and Development Party, because it, there will be splits in the party. It, as I've said, it's a confederation. It's not a strong ideological commitment, that party. And so in the upcoming four or five years, that party may split into two, three, four, maybe. Uh, but also, Erdogan investing on himself so much, and would he leave the things as itself going like that, or he will push with more authoritarian measures? Therefore, the, the election results will give us a very new picture, and uh, therefore, the, the, your question will be answered in the after the election period. Uh, uh, حننهي مع السفير عبد الله ابو حبيب تفضلي that his view, that the Syrian war is the third chess game uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which started in the 1970s. And he believed that only Iran and uh, only Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, if there will be a wise leader there, could be the new architecture of the Levant. If so, if you share his opinion, what would be where, where Turkey stands in, or the new Turkey stands in this new equation with all its ambitions and what, what, all what you have said so far? Well, uh, now uh, you made me reminding of my Turkish identity. In this neighborhood, uh, if there is Iran, how the, the counter uh, actor or balance, or whatever, could be Saudi Arabia. Who is Saudi Arabia, first of all? <laughs> I understand for, for the people around this table, in this town, there is much money there. But so what? I mean, we will see who will be the counterpart, but for sure not Saudi Arabia. Who is Saudi Arabia? Really, who is Saudi Arabia? Um, we may have problems and uh, the differences and so on, but we came back to the region. We are here. <laughs> so, so we it was presented that it could be still Turkey. I asked this question. It depends on, well, now. Could still be Turkey and Iran? Yes, of course. I mean, they, in this region, there are two states and half, two and a half states. Turkey and Iran, irrespective of who, what the regime is, who is it? They are states. They are states, not statelets. <laughs> states. And the other half is Egypt. The rest is 
they existed at a certain certain period of history, but we are not sure how long and within which which frontiers and what sort of governments that they will exist or survive. So Saudi Arabia is not an exception to this. But in this part of the world, because of the, the financial weight of Saudi Arabia and thanks to the American and Western umbrella because of the oil issue, it, it always perceived much larger than it really is, Saudi Arabia. What why it should it represents Wahhabism. If Wahhabism is Sunnism, all right. But Wahhabism is not Sunnism. Wahhabism is a deviation of Sunnism in the uh, with references to Ibn Taymiyyah in 18th century or so. so Sunnism, the, the overwhelming majority of Sunnis, ideologically by loyalty, by knowledge has nothing to do with Wahhabism and uh, if you take out Wahhabism from Saudi Arabia, there is no Saudi Arabia in the Sunni realm. So uh, I don't think that if the, the, uh, with all respect to Pico's yeah. good friend also to me, experience, he, he has to become, he has become too much localized and marginalized it seems to see Saudi Arabia as a permanent actor at the same par with Iran. Iran is a serious thing. Who is Saudi Arabia? It can be on the same par with Iran forever. Dr. Abdullah Abu Habib. You will see Turkey, but what sort of a Turkey we don't know yet. Saudi think that the Americans work for them, right? But now they have a shared revolution. Yes. It will change many things. Now, my question, you were in the United States last week. Yes. Obama was fascinated with Erdogan at the beginning, and his first speech in the Middle East came from Turkey, right? Yes. And uh, he liked the Brotherhood in Egypt and other places, uh, influenced by Erdogan. What is the relation now? Very bad. Uh, the relation is very bad. Especially after Biden and what happened? They are all show. They are, they are all the showcase of the thing. The relation is very, very bad because uh, in the United States, amazingly, uh, although Obama was seen by outside world and also within the United States as a weak president, which he may be, but in terms of decision making, it is he is the one. State Department, Pentagon, National Security Council, they are all far away. He has the one man kind of a rule. Uh, uh, he's strong in terms of uh, American decisions, but whether America is strong by his policies, it's, it's, uh, it's another thing. F but for this Obama, <coughs> which is very strong in terms of the, the configuration of power in Washington, this Obama, exactly as you have said, that the Erdogan was his best friend. Not only that he made his first visit by bilateral basis outside of uh, America to Turkey. Uh, and also, until last year, he openly declared that Erdogan is the person he spoke most on the telephone or one-on-one. -on -one. If he was taking uh, an hour or half an hour, 45 minutes with the others, he was giving two hours, three hours 
تو اردان سوسویی کرد فرد اردان Obama, uh, it started with Istanbul Taksim Gezi events, they say. Uh, it was very traumatic for Obama in terms of his uh, uh, faith on, on Erdogan, not because that uh, Americans or Obama was very interested by people demonstrating in Taksim and Uh, so they were suppressed and they got angry. No, it has nothing to do with it because 14 people got killed, because police used tear gas, the Americans got very angry. It's not the reason, of course. The reason, they say, after Gizzi, Erdogan set on a course to change le legislation. One after the other, uh, uh, the freedom of expression, freedom of press was curtailed. Freedom of internet was uh, interfered. It, it looked like China or Iran, Syria, so on, uh, internet. Uh, uh, and, uh, and there was interference in the composition of the judiciary, which represented the separation of powers in Turkey. And so for American, for Obama, Gezi represented a course that Erdogan took for an authoritarian uh, direction, uh, that meant for the Americans, Turkey being the democratic model uh, to be instrumental for American policies in the region. If Turkey loses that image of being an ever-growing functioning democracy, and if the anti-democratic process starts in Turkey, then It will be, it would be, and it did, losing uh, the the value for the Americans that they could instrumentalize. So, uh, for after Gezi, Obama was very upset by the conduct and performance of Erdogan. The second thing they said was Mosul. What happened in Mosul? Because before Mosul, the Americans depended a lot to Turks in terms of analyzing the region, what's going on, and so on and so forth. Uh, intelligence, uh, they shared intelligence, they gave a lot of intelligence about PKK by these drones and eavesdropping and so on. And in terms, in, in turn, the Turks gave them intelligence about who is who in the region and what's happening. So before Daesh took over Mosul, the Turks were telling to the American counterparts, these are not published in the press, that they are telling to their American uh, counterparts that nothing important is taking place. Don't get uh, very upset about Daesh. Mosul, nothing will happen to Mosul. And after they heard all these things, after a after few days, Mosul fell <laughs> to Daesh. And so the, the interpretation in Washington has become that our Turkish allies if they can make such gross tactical judgment, 
And if we take them as our guides in the region, we will end up nowhere. So they lost the trust in the tactical sense, confidence in the tactical sense that Turks have a clairvoyant government and leadership. Why are they not misleading them? Who? Was it the weak judge if they were misleading them? No, well, as I told you earlier, the the Turks from the Turkish vantage point, Daesh is not seen as from a Western or another Arab vantage point. They may not like it, but they don't perceive it as a main threat. First of all, secondly, even if they establish a caliphate from Halep to Mosul, the Turks think that they can deal with it in the long run. So they might be miscalculating. They might be miscalculating. But because that Daesh was not as a, a, a pressing importance to Turkish eyes, the way they perceived it, they just transferred to the Americans as their own judgment, which in the Americans' uh, eyes, that they felt they are misled by the uh, At least they said they are not tactically intelligent, wise, and good. So if we depend on Turkey in our regional politics, we will end up in disaster. So they lost confidence in, term of, in terms of political guidance. Uh, then came Kobani. In Kobani, uh, we may ignore some military details, but it is very important for Americans that the, the American aircraft bombing Kobani flies from Qatar or Bahrain, that area, goes all the way to northern Syria, next to Turkey's border. It refuels in order to reach. Completes its mission and goes back. It refuels again on air and goes back. So the cost of this and the risk of this compared to if American aircraft would fly over from Injerlik. If you take off in a few minutes, you are over Kobani. A few minutes, less than five minutes maybe. Uh, it's enormous. And that airbase is an American airbase within the umbrella of NATO. And Turkey is a NATO member country and American ally. But it's not acting as an ally with the Americans. Uh, and uh, so when they, they by airlift, uh, provided assistance to, to uh, PYD or YPG, the Kurds in Kobani, they say that it was not only a military decision, it was also a political decision. Because we know who PYD is, what its relation to BKK and so on, how allergic it is to Turkey. And so, and, and Erdogan was always heralding news that Kobani is about to fall. He expected Kobani would fall, and he wanted Kobani to fall, actually, to Daesh. Kobani, Americans prevented the fall of Kobani, and they provided assistance of weaponry by airlift. To whom? At that time, Barzani's Peshmergas, and altogether there are 150 people. Uh, the, the fighters on the ground were, were those Turks 
related to PKK or to an organization related to PKK. Directly or indirectly. Because, I mean, every day, every day, literally, I'm saying, there are funerals in Kurdish uh, settlements in Turkey, in Diyarbakır, Van, Hakkari, uh, Urfa, everywhere, of the fallen YPG fighters of Kobani. Uh, when um, they are killed, they are brought to the border point, uh, taken into Turkey, and they are uh, buried in their hometown. So they are Turkish Kurds. That means the fighters of Kobani, some are Syrian Kurds, many of them are Turkish Kurds. The, uh, because of the funerals, we understand it. And there, that means, the, and they say it in, in private, when they decided to, to provide a military support to, uh, uh, to the fighters of Kobani, they knew, the Americans, they knew that it was a political decision also, and that decision at that level could only be received by uh, Obama. And, uh, and Erdogan also objected to, to, to that. He, he, he had some ob objection remark. So Biden's visit, uh, in the face of the public, they said it's a new page, everything is sorted out, blah, blah. But the information leaked from the visit, from the Turkish side, by the way, not from the American side. The Americans are painting more rosy pictures. Uh, they belong to this happy end culture, you know. So, uh, but the Turkish sources, fed by the Turks, people around Erdogan and Davutoğlu, they say that there is, a, 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 with Biden, there is a, a unity of understanding on cooperation concerning Iraq against Daesh. But on Syria, the positions are as they were before. So there are two Daesh positions. One about Iraq, Americans and Turks are willing to but cooperate. Like Saudis. Hmm? Saudis are like that. Kurds? Also. No, in Syria they don't get involved. Who? Saudis. Saudis, they have aircraft in the coalition. <laughs> they, they send sometimes aircraft. But uh, the main aircraft, as far as I know, it's American, Australian, Australian also, Canadian, French, also French. Shukran, Cengiz. Shukran, شكرا لحضوركم جميعا شكرا لصديقنا جنكيز على الحديث الممتع والمثير والمفيد جدا